Good morning, good morning. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the life group pastors here at Southeast. I'm the grandson of Puerto Rican migrants, born and raised in the city of New York. And yes, I absolutely love thin crust pizza, Chinese takeout, watching Yankees baseball, and pay-per-view boxing all day. The New Yorker stereotypes are absolutely fundamentally true. I've been married for 12 years to my wife, Sasha, with whom I've been blessed with a four-year-old daughter named Autumn. You've probably seen her running through the lobby on Sundays uh, with her bouncy brown curls. She's absolutely my princess and teaches me a ton about God's love. You can pray for Sasha and I as we're in nesting mode, preparing for the arrival of our second daughter this April. Thank you. Those of you who are parents know that there's lots of stuff to plan and figure out in the third trimester, primarily emotionally. And today, I have the privilege of kicking off our new sermon series called Restoration. Now, when you think of the word church, what comes to mind? Do you think of a steeple, church bells, or stained glass windows? Maybe you think of soup kitchens, hospitals, Orphanages. Maybe you think of people you dearly love and people who love you. Or people you dislike, people who have hurt you. Do you think of atrocities like the Crusades, abusive clergy, or political parties? Throughout history and around the world, the church has been a force for blessing and destruction. Charity and calamity, love and indeed hatred. If we're honest, the church has always been a mixed bag. But when Jesus thinks of the church, certain things come to his mind too. When Jesus thinks of the church, he thinks of his motive for living, dying, and rising from the dead. When he thinks of the church, he thinks of the object of his affections. He thinks of the joy of his salvation. Today, we're going to take some time to open the scriptures and discover the primary purpose of the church, to be reconciled to God and become ministers of reconciliation. This morning, I'd like to share with you three points based on our passage. Number one, Jesus alone created everything. Number two, Jesus alone sustains everything. And number three, Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. Our passage for today is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. You can feel free to follow along with me on the screen. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I am praying that you would do something supernatural in this room right now. Lord, I can only speak words, but you can change hearts. As we open up the scriptures this morning together, open up our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive in, I think it's helpful, as it's our custom here at Southeast, to discuss the context of this passage because context matters. There it is. What was the context of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians? Biblical scholar M.L. McDonald wrote, and here we have an image, I believe, of the city of Colossae on the screen, that according to Herodotus, the city of Colossae was the largest in the Lycus Valley in the five centuries before the Christian era. Xenophon described it as a large and prosperous city in about 400 BC, but by the first century BC, in the biblical context, it had declined considerably in size and importance. Numerous coins have been found in the area that point to the worship of the Ephesian Artemis, the Laodicean Zeus, Men, Selene, and more. Most agree that Epaphras, the companion of Paul, started the church at Colossae, most likely in the home of Philemon, whose famous runaway slave Onesimus became a companion of Paul's in ministry. Paul's awareness of the church was probably due to the reports from Epaphras. And Colossians 2.1 suggests that he had not been there when he wrote the letter, but later he made plans to visit Colossae. What's the purpose of this letter? Biblical scholar Benjamin Glad wrote that the church at Colossae wanted more. They desired not only the crucified Christ, but also deeper spiritual truths. They believed in Christ and in the gospel, yet they found themselves looking for something more. They dabbled in Jewish philosophy and pagan magical practices. In their eyes, the gospel was not sufficient to meet all their needs. Some, perhaps, but not all. Paul, therefore, writes Colossians to correct the Greco-Roman Jewish heresy and affirms the priority of Christ and the gospel. Okay, with that bit of context in mind, let's zero in on our passage. My first point this morning to you is this. Number one, Jesus alone created everything. Jesus alone created everything. Take a look with me at verse 15. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus alone created everything. Paul begins by describing Jesus this way. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. This means that Jesus is God's exact likeness. He is God in full color. He mirrors God in all his fullness. Biblical scholar N.C. Wright wrote that if there is somebody sitting in the next room, I can't see them because there's a wall in the way. But if there is a mirror out in the hallway, I may be able to look out of my door and see in the mirror the mirror image of the person in the next room. In the same way, Jesus is the mirror image of the God who is there, but who we normally can't see. We may be aware of his presence. In fact, many people, many religions, many systems of philosophy have admitted that there is something or somebody there. But with Jesus, we find ourselves looking at the true God himself. Paul says he is also the firstborn of all creation. Glad wrote that Christ's status as the firstborn is to be taken not as a literal depiction. In other words, that Christ is literally the first one born, but rather as a figurative expression. This particular concept is rooted in the Old Testament. When then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That's Exodus 4.22. These texts refer not to a literal or physical firstborn, but to relational priority. In other words, Christ is the firstborn because he is the most supreme being, not because he is created. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This means that he wasn't merely the instrument of creation, but the agent who made it all happen and the goal towards which it's all headed. He is the creator of everything. Note the scope of his creation. Paul delineates here. All things in all places in heaven and on earth and all things that can be seen and all things that can't be seen, visible and invisible. Pretty comprehensive. Then Paul specifies whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What's he referring to here? Biblical scholar Clinton E. Arnold wrote that Paul is using the current Jewish terms for various rankings of angels, although he doesn't explain their relative ranks. His emphasis here may be on the evil angels since they play a significant part in this letter. This would not mean, however, that Jesus created evil angels Rather, all spiritual powers were created by Jesus, but some later chose to rebel against God and so to become evil. So Jesus is not only the agent of creation, for everything was created by him and for him, that is, for his honor and praise. Since Jesus is in this sense the goal of creation, he must be fully God. Jesus alone created everything. As I reflected on this point, I found myself thinking about the world's greatest inventors. We have some pictures on the screen. I've always been fascinated with their creativity and tenacity. You see, invention is the act of bringing ideas or things together in a new way to create something that didn't exist before. Inventions have changed the world. Some inventors, like Thomas Edison, who developed the electric light bulb and the phonograph, 
Alexander Graham Bell, the telephone, and Wilbur and Orville Wright, the airplane, are widely known. Yet all of these incredible inventors and their amazing inventions pale in comparison to the creation of Jesus. One of the first places my family and I visited when we moved here almost two years ago was the Gates Planetarium at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It's definitely a cool place to check out sometime. And as I reflected on this point, I found myself thinking about the tiniest and largest known objects in the universe. Think about this for a moment. Scientists claim that quarks are the tiniest known particles in the universe. They're the stuff that protons and neutrons are made of. Jesus created quarks. Take a look at this image. Think with me for a moment about galaxy clusters. Galaxy clusters are these massive groups of individual galaxies like our own, the Milky Way. Jesus created galaxy clusters too. From the tiniest to the largest known objects in the universe, he made it all. But let's get a little bit more personal. To say that Jesus alone created everything is to say that Jesus alone created you. Like a chef with a recipe, he personally designed you from scratch. He chose the time and place where you'd be born. He chose your parents and siblings for you. He designed your DNA with your gender, individual eye color, hair color, height. He gave you certain talents and abilities such that you have been able to build upon them through education and experience. His creation of you is intensely personal and intentional. Jesus alone created everything, and so Jesus alone created you. So what does all this have to do with you? Well, to say that Jesus created everything means that he alone deserves your worship. Just as Aaron Smith, our band director, mentioned a few weeks ago, when it comes to worship, it's funny that we have no problem cheering on athletes at a game or applauding performers at a concert. But sometimes, if we're honest... Some of us have a real problem with worshiping Jesus. But why? Can I ask, why do you care what someone else thinks about your worship of Jesus? Listen, everything that is good in your life, everything that is true in your life, and everything that is beautiful in your life is because of Jesus. So let's talk about a topic that doesn't often come up in church. Let's talk about idolatry for a moment. When we think of idolatry, we usually think of statues made of stone or wood, right? I know I do. Years ago, I I went on my first international missions trip to the country of India. And one of the glaring examples of idolatry is the country of India. I mean, idols were everywhere. Some were beautiful and intricately designed. Others were more modest and humble in their composition. And like we have restaurants everywhere here in the U.S., India has idols scattered everywhere as far as can see. But listen to what theologian Martin Luther once wrote. He said, what does to have a God mean? Or what is God? He answers, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. 
Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust is false and wrong, there you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. Notice what Luther says here. An idol is anything on which your heart relies and depends. Does anything in your life fit that description? What is your heart relying or depending on right now? Is it money? Your net worth? Your bank account? Your stock portfolio? Is it a relationship? A man or woman? Is it the success of your children? Their grade point average? Their achievements? Listen, everybody worships something. Everybody is ultimately relying or depending upon something or someone in life. But Jesus alone created everything. And so Jesus alone deserves your worship. My second point is this. Jesus alone sustains everything. Jesus alone sustains everything. Take a look with me at verse 17. Paul writes, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So first of all, Jesus alone created everything. And secondly, Jesus alone sustains everything. Paul continues explaining who Jesus is by affirming that he is before all things. This is what is referred to as one of God's incommunicable attributes. Big word, but here's what it means. In other words, this is one of the ways that God is not like us as humans. He didn't communicate or share this attribute with us when he created us in his image. What attribute is Paul referring to here? Theologian J.I. Packer once wrote this. He says, God is limited neither by space, he is everywhere in his fullness continually, nor by time. There is no present moment into which he is locked as we are. Theologians refer to God's freedom from limits and bounds as his infinity, his immensity, and his transcendence. This means that before light and darkness, sun and moon, water and land, plants, animals, birds, and humans, there was Jesus. He is fully divine. The one true God, the Lord, Yahweh, who precedes time and space. And Paul then teaches that in this Jesus, all things hold together. This is what is referred to as God's providence. You see, people, places, and things continue to exist because God, in Jesus Christ, his son, causes and sustains people, places, and things. Nothing in all of his creation continues to exist because of luck, or fate, or chance. Rather, everything in all of creation continues to exist because Jesus personally sustains it all. The New City Catechism puts it this way, nothing happens except through him and by his will. Jesus alone sustains everything. 
As I reflected on this second point, I found myself thinking about what happens when you pull the plug on a TV. Have you ever done this before? We have an image that I'd like to show you. I don't recommend it, but you know what I'm talking about. Imagine this for a moment. Things don't usually go well when you mess with your TV, but think about this. Biblical scholars John Walton and Andrew Hill wrote, what would happen to us and the world if God turned himself off? Some might think that goodness would dwindle away or that nature would begin to malfunction. But if we follow the biblical way of thinking, we would have to answer that we and everything in the world would immediately cease to exist. It would be like pulling the plug on the TV. The people in the screen would not just move more slowly, the screen would go blank and cold. If for a moment, just for an instant, just for a second, Jesus stopped sustaining everything, everything would immediately cease to exist. Immediately, game over, screen goes black. Thankfully, this is not going to happen because Jesus alone sustains everything. So how should this change your life? Well, geek out with me for a moment here, and you're probably thinking, haven't we already been doing that? Um, The American Museum of Natural History answers the question, what makes the earth habitable? It's a fascinating question. Listen to this list. They explain that the earth is the right distance from the sun. It is protected from harmful solar radiation by its magnetic field. It is kept warm by an insulating atmosphere, and it has the right chemical ingredients for life, including water and carbon. The processes that shape the earth and its environment constantly cycle elements throughout the planet. This cycling sustains life and leads to the formation of the mineral and energy resources that are the foundation of modern technological society. Atheistic scientists would have you and I believe that this entire list that I just described happens by chance, by luck, or by fate. But this passage, Paul the Apostle writing under the inspiration of the Spirit would have you believe that Jesus is the one who personally sustains complex life on this planet. Okay, let's get a little bit more personal. You may take pride in the fact that you attend worship every Sunday or read your Bible or pray. But if Jesus didn't give you the grace to do so, you wouldn't. So Jesus sustains your faith. You and your spouse may boast in the fact that you've been married for many years. It's a wonderful thing. But if he didn't give you the grace to overlook your spouse's offenses time and time And time, and in my wife's case for me, time (laughs) again, you wouldn't be married today. So Jesus sustains your marriage. You may brag that you have the best, most accomplished, most moral kids in the world today, but if Jesus didn't give you wisdom on how to train up that kid in the way they should go, they would have absolutely departed from your teaching. So Jesus also sustains your kids You may take pride in the fact that you eat healthy, you exercise, you go to the doctor for your annual checkup, but if Jesus personally didn't provide you with food, clean water, a body that is able to exercise, and the ability to sleep, you wouldn't be healthy for long. 
So Jesus also sustains your health. All of this ultimately occurs for one reason and one reason alone. Not fate, not luck, not chance, but Jesus alone sustains everything. And third and finally, Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. Take a look with me at verse 18. Paul continues, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So first of all, Jesus alone created everything. Secondly, Jesus alone sustains everything. And thirdly, Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. Paul affirms that he is the head of the body, the church. One of the metaphors for the church is that of a human body. As the head of the body, Jesus is the one who directs and leads the church. He is also, Paul describes, the beginning. This means that Jesus is the point at which history itself began, its origin and source. He is also the firstborn from the dead. This echoes what Jesus said about himself when he personally claimed to be the resurrection and the life. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus serves as like a trailer, a preview of what's to come for all who trust in him by faith. Namely, that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so too will we be physically raised from the dead if we believe in him. The reason he's the firstborn from the dead, Paul describes, is that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, Jesus did this so that he might have the paramount rank the dignity and utmost importance in all of the universe. In him, Paul says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, all that God is, Jesus is. All that God can do, Jesus can do. Because Jesus is, in fact, God himself. And just as the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament were the dwelling place of God, Yahweh, so Jesus is now the dwelling place of God, Yahweh. This is what he says to the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well. You will worship neither here nor there. There's a time coming when all will worship in one place, and Jesus is that place. He is where God is pleased to dwell. In him, God reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The very act of reconciliation on his part assumes that our relationship with God is fundamentally broken. He goes on to describe the church at Colossae before this act of reconciliation when he writes, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Prior to their conversion to Christ, the Colossians were separated from God because of sin. 
prior to their union with Christ by faith, they treated God as their enemy in their thinking. Prior to becoming disciples of Jesus, they lived lives that can only be described with one word, and Paul uses it clearly and profoundly, evil. But now, now that they've converted, now that they've turned from their sins to Jesus by faith, he has fully and finally reconciled them to God. This is amazing. He did this, Paul says, through his body of flesh by his death. This refers to the death of Jesus on the cross. While in verses 15 to 17, Paul explains who Jesus is, now in verses 18 to 23, he explained what Jesus does. He says he died on the cross to reconcile believers to God. The London Confession of Faith puts it brilliantly. It says that he experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died, and yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he ascends into heaven where he sits at the right hand of his father interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. The Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit and then Paul explains why this Jesus reconciles believers to God when he says that this happened quote in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him biblical scholar Curtis Vaughn wrote holy that term suggests consecration and dedication without blemish which translates a technical sacrificial term, and it was used of animals that were without flaw in the Old Testament and therefore worthy of being offered to God. The use of this word gives support to the view that in this statement, Paul was not thinking about our personal conduct, but about our position in Christ. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a Christian life that is without blemish in actual conduct. But Christians' identification with Christ is such that his righteousness and his standing before God are theirs. In other words, when believers trust in Jesus alone for reconciliation with God, something immediate and amazing takes place. Luther once called it the great exchange. Hang out with me for a moment. God exchanges your sin for the righteousness of Christ. He exchanges your unholiness for Christ's holiness. He exchanges your blameworthiness for Christ's blamelessness. He exchanges your filthiness for Christ's cleanliness. He exchanges your shame for Christ's record of being above reproach before God. And this all happens in a moment. When you turn from your sins in repentance and trust in Jesus alone by faith. This is good news. This is good news for you. It's good news for me. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. The grace of God in Jesus Christ does. But notice, notice how he poses an if-then statement. 
This is really crucial to the passage. He says that the Colossians will be reconciled to God through Jesus if something happens. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If the Colossians continue in the faith, they will be reconciled to God. Biblical scholar Robert Gromacki wrote that the phrase, the faith, refers to the body of biblical truth that is essential to the doctrine of salvation, not to one's personal faith. In other words, Paul didn't say that if the Colossians continue in their personal faith, dot, dot, dot. Rather, he said, if they continue in the faith, singular and exclusive, if they continue in the Christian faith, the faith that has Christ as its sum and substance, the faith that has Christ as its center and its all, they will indeed fully and finally experience reconciliation with God. And here's the thing that should give you hope today. The same Jesus who died to reconcile is the Jesus who causes you to persevere. The same God who called you to faith in Christ is the God who enables you to continue in that faith. What God starts, he finishes. What he began, he will complete. What he initiated, he will culminate. Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. As I reflected on this third point, I found myself thinking about those old Alfred Hitchcock movies. Do you remember those movies? I used to watch them with my dad. My dad is here, and I'm really proud to have him here. I used to watch them with my dad uh, when I was a kid with a bag of Oreos on our couch. Hitchcock made famous movies like Psycho, the most profitable black and white film in history, and The Birds, a a movie about terrifying pigeons. And uh, philosopher Peter Kreeft wrote this. He says, suppose an author inserted himself into his own novel or play or movie as one of its own characters. This character would have a double nature and would have come down from heaven, so to speak, the heaven of the author's mind. Yet he would be a completely human character interacting with the other characters in the story. This is fascinating. Think about this. Alfred Hitchcock frequently did this, inserting himself into his own movies as a character for a fleeting moment. If he can do it, why can't God? This is what the gospel, the good news about Jesus is all about. You see, in and through the person and work of Jesus, God, the author of the story, has inserted himself into history to reconcile us to himself. You see, God isn't attached. You see, God isn't unmoved. You see, God is not aloof. In Jesus, God has entered into the human story to reconcile us to our creator and sustainer. But let's be honest. This all gets at one of the biggest reasons why so many people reject Jesus, exclusivism. Allow me to chat for a moment with the doubters in the room. You know who you are. I see you. And better yet, God sees you and he loves you. And here at Southeast, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe you've asked yourself questions like, why is there only one way to God? Why are Christians so narrow-minded? 
Why does the church teach that there can only be one true religion? Isn't that arrogant? Pastor Tim Keller wrote this. He says, skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes that God is unknowable or that God is loving but not wrathful or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religion's views of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be as well. If it is not narrow to hold this view, then there is nothing inherently narrow about holding to traditional religious beliefs. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. But here's the crux of the matter. We have to take Jesus on his own terms, or not at all. You see, the church didn't invent Jesus' exclusivity. The church didn't make this stuff up. Throughout history and around the world, let me tell you something, it definitely would have been a lot easier on the church if it abandoned this belief. But Jesus claims this about himself, and the church has merely echoed this message around the world and throughout history, even to the point of shedding blood. Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. So why should this matter to you? Who cares? Well, like the church at Colossae, before Jesus reconciled them to God, you too are alienated from God because of sin. You too are hostile in your mind towards God. You too are engaged in evil deeds. Forget the church for a moment. You've got to be honest with God about all of that. You've got to get real with him. No more games. No more church as usual. No more pretending like you're a good person. The Bible calls this confession. Confession simply means coming into agreement with God about where you're at with him right now. You're a sinner. But listen, don't stop there. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. Your resume doesn't have to have the final say when it comes to your relationship with God. If you'll turn from your sins to Jesus by faith, we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about direction. God will exchange your sins for Christ's righteousness. You see, reconciliation with God isn't a deed you achieve, it's a gift you receive. You don't have to rely on yourself to be reconciled with God. You have to rely on God's grace in Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus alone as the one who reconciles you to God? You don't have to clean yourself up. Jesus has come to make you clean. 
Only his death makes that happen. He did his part. You must do yours by believing. Furthermore, if you've embraced Jesus by faith, are you persevering in the faith? Are you continuing on what you've received? Are you keeping on with what's been announced to you? You see, reconciliation with God is objectively true for believers and subjectively shown by those who persevere. Paul put it this way in his letter to the church at Philippi, one of my favorite verses in scripture. He says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can bank your life on it. What Christ has begun in you, he will finish when he returns. So take heart. Jesus alone reconciles believers to God. So here are some implications. Number one, worship Jesus alone as your creator and sustainer. Don't let anyone or anything take his place. Some of the greatest threats to worshiping Jesus alone are not other religions or philosophies. Frankly, atheism isn't our biggest problem. Syncretism is. It's good things that we allow to become ultimate things. Maybe it's sleep. Maybe it's road trips with the family. Maybe it's kids' sports events. When we allow what is otherwise a gift from God to distract or deter us from worshiping Jesus, we've fallen into the sin of idolatry. How might you rearrange the good things in your life that you've allowed to come between you and worshiping Jesus? Whom do you need to let know that you'll be prioritizing worship from now on? What conversation do you need to have about your Sunday mornings moving forward? Worship Jesus alone as your creator and sustainer. Don't let anyone or anything take his place. Secondly, trust in Jesus as the one who reconciles you to God. Don't rely on your good works. You see, reading the Bible is good, but reading the Bible doesn't reconcile you to God. Prayer is good. I hope you'll join us tonight for prayer. But prayer doesn't reconcile you to God. Fellowship with the church is good, but fellowship doesn't reconcile you to God. Giving to the church is good, but giving doesn't reconcile you to God. Serving with the church is good, and I hope you'll sign up at the volunteer fair today, but serving doesn't reconcile you to God. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who reconciles you to God, not your good works. You see, even our best works are often tainted by mixed motives. So what are you trusting in today to be made right with God? What are you hoping will balance the scales on judgment day? Where have you placed your hope for your wrongs to be undone? Trust in Jesus as the one who reconciles you to God. Don't rely on your good works. And third and finally, become a minister of reconciliation. Don't let anything get in the way of pointing people to Jesus along with your life. You see, ministry is not reserved for paid professionals like me. Ministry is the work of every Christian everywhere. Every member of the church is a minister of the church. Becoming a minister of reconciliation means that God calls you as a follower of Jesus to share and show the message of Jesus to see others made new. We become heralds with our words and our lives. 
You share with your words the good news or the gospel of Jesus, and then you show with your life how that message has changed you. Here's the deal. Sharing Jesus without showing him is hypocrisy. Showing Jesus without sharing him means you won't have the joy of experiencing someone being reconciled to God through you. Jesus calls us to both. So how can you begin living as a minister of reconciliation today? With whom do you need to share the good news or the gospel about Jesus? How in your relationships can you show that this message has changed your life? Become a minister of reconciliation. Don't let anything get in the way of pointing people to Jesus alone. I'd like to conclude with Paul's words from his letter to the church at Corinth. It gets at the heart of what this all means for us here at Southeast and what it should mean for every local church that calls Christ its Savior. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is my favorite verse. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To be reconciled to God and become ministers of reconciliation, that's what the church should be all about. That's what our church should be about. You know, maybe your next step today is to become baptized, to show God and others that you've been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. For others of you, maybe your next step is to join a life group. I'm a little biased because I'm a life group pastor. Maybe this is the space to begin to grow spiritually alongside others who are also discovering what it means to become ministers of reconciliation. Or maybe your next step is to check out the volunteer fair today in the lobby and find out how you can practically become a minister of reconciliation. Former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, once said this. I love this. He says, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears.
Don't let your fears of what could go wrong stop you from experiencing what can go right. Let nothing and no one stop you from being reconciled to God and becoming a minister of reconciliation. And so I'll ask you the same question I asked when we began. When you think of the word church, what comes to mind? Hopefully, moving forward, what comes to mind will be reconciled to God and becoming a minister of reconciliation because that's what the church, that's what our church should be all about. Before we take communion, take a moment and ask the Lord to help you hear how his spirit would lead you to change this morning. At the heart of the Christian life is active trust in Jesus and in his sacrificial death for sin. In this symbolic meal originating from Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we express our trust in him as we eat and drink with our brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family. Communion, you see, it's an outward and visible sign of the grace shown to us in the death of our Savior. As we share the bread and juice together, we're invited to feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. We're faced again week after week with God's love for the unworthy and are strengthened by faith in the one whose body was given and whose blood was shed for us. So I want to invite you to come to this symbolic meal with heartfelt repentance and genuine trust in the Lord Jesus, recognizing the significance of sharing in this way. And if in good conscience it wouldn't be right for you to participate this morning, that's okay. Just use this time to reflect on God's love for us in Christ. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Jesus said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Lord, our God, as we discover, many of us in this room for the first time, the purpose of the church set our hearts ablaze with the truth of this message. Help us, every man, woman, and child in this room, to be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ and by your spirit forever. And help us to go one step further and become ministers of reconciliation. I pray that even now, your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart in this room about what that next step means for them. In Jesus' name.